It's just us. And that truck. Well, a private conversation between us and that truck that, and its axle. That truck is a gift from me. <laughs> Squeaky axle. Love, I, Lauren. I ordered it from trucks.com. Mm. Which, oddly enough, doesn't sell trucks. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense because I, I don't feel like they'd be that obvious. Yeah, no. I don't, I don't respect so they, anyone who's so that obvious. So then they obvious. referred me to actualtrucks.com. Actualtrucks.com. Which is www.actualtrucks.com. <laughs> and that actually is a British thing now, and so it's is lorries. Is it .co.uk? No, it's lorries.co.uk. That makes so much sense. Ready graphics? Ready theme? Hi, I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown podcast. Speaking of classic Murphy Brown attire, Murphy Brown is Wonder Woman. Bing, bing, bing. How do you even do that? I can't even wait. Well, I can't wink either. Does Does security security know you're here? And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season one, episode 20, the summer of 77. Hello, and welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Lauren. I'm Jesse. And we are talking about my favorite episode. Of season one. Of season one. That's right. Yes. Sorry. Season one. Let's not throw everything in here. No, 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 no. Um, the original title of the summer of 77 was Can't Get Our Fill. Which I love that little pun. Yeah. And going back, you know, there were some other episodes that we found out after the fact had other titles. Like when we spoke with Russ Woody, we found out Nowhere to Run was called Death of a Silver Bird. <laughs> and Set Me Free was originally called Rescue Me. Yeah. Probably also for the song. For the song. Yeah. Exactly. Written by Diane English. Yes, it was directed by Barnett Kelman. Two up-and-coming names within our podcast. You may be hearing from them soon. Mm. And we actually have commentary from the DVD from this episode from Diane, which we'll pepper throughout the episode. Peppering. A little spicing. Mm-hmm. It aired May 8th, 1989, the day before Candace Bergen's birthday. What a lovely birthday, this lovely episode. Yes. Yeah. And it was one of Joe Ragabudu's Emmy submissions for consideration for Best Supporting Actor. I can see that. Especially because, you know, based on our conversations with Joe, which I love that I get to say that, you can see that he finds a lot of joy as a performer in working with others, not just, you know, what am I trying to say, schmacting for someone. <laughs> He's actually really into the connection. And this one is so, this episode is so much about their connection. Is that some Yinglish? That is a little bit of Yinglish. I feel like we might be getting back to that concept a little later. We will, yeah. Mm. Uh, so the the episode starts with a cold open with uh, the song In the Midnight Hour, um, particularly the performance by Wilson Pickett. And as I often do on this podcast, I'm just going to bring up that my favorite version of this song is from the movie The Commitments. Check it out, kids. Anywho, so the In the Midnight Hour was originally performed by Wilson Pickett in 1965. It was also released on his 65 album of the same name, also appearing on the 66 album The Exciting Wilson Pickett. Just in case you can remember which Wilson Pickett, this is the exciting one. It was written by Pickett and Steve Cropper on the Atlantic label, placing at a number 134 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. It was his first of two entries on that list, the other being The Amazing Mustang Sally from the album of the same name. Interesting. Um, and in 2017, the song was selected for preservation in the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, and artistically significant. And I could not agree more. So we, we have this cold open, which according to the Murphy Brown book, actually also contained Murphy. But I think they had to cut some things for time. She can't think of an idea. She's trying to type in her office. But the main crux of what we see is Miles. On the phone, a landline. A landline. Talking, trying to figure out the coffee on the coffee island. And this is actually based on a real thing that happened. (laughs) 
I know. I'm not surprised at all. Diane apparently caught Grant confused by the coffee maker at her house. <laughs> oh. Um, although I love the way in the commentary she says that everybody becomes stymied by the coffee maker. I wrote, the only thing I wrote here was, how many men does it take to fix a coffee machine? Yes. It's, yeah. The idea behind it, according to the commentary, was that all of the assistants are gone for the day. It's very late, you know, and all this high-paid talent, as Diane said. <laughs> Doesn't know how to provide for itself. Does not know how to provide for itself. <laughs> they even bring the janitor in. I know, and he can't figure it out it's either. just another man. I love how at the end of it, uh, the back sort of falls off, and Frank just sort of takes it and has this look on his face of... Just utter... <laughs> I put utter dismay. Yes. Miles, the janitor, and Jim all turn it upside... Miles turns it upside down, and all three of them are looking at the bottom to see if there's, like, directions. And then it clearly unplanned. The top falls off. And Joe very, very quickly and comfortably just catches it and then does this, like, turn out toward the audience with this look of dismay. It's genius. I, I wrote comic gold. But I also wrote that Frank deals with a coffee maker like it's a committed relationship. <laughs> He's like, oh, oh no. what? Uh, what? But I, w- I was saying that's clearly not, wasn't supposed to happen. Also, it's not the first time this episode that Joe does that same face. No, no, he does it a lot. <laughs> it's really he good. He does it a lot, and I, I enjoy it very much so. In- uh, something also Diane said is that this particular episode is backstory, which we will discuss, and mm-hmm. that most TV shows, you know, don't establish it so early. But this was something they really wanted to do to add texture to these people. And also she talked about how this the Murphy Brown, which we talked about with some of the writers, utilizes the three-act structure that most sitcoms are two acts. Mm-hmm. And I think that definitely comes from her theater background. Absolutely. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So we're in the bullpen. It's At the n- real midnight hour. Yes, right? Nee, nee, nee. They were around the glass table. Diane mentions in the commentary that they picked this particular table because they needed something that was intimate and small enough and could get all the camera angles, yeah. which is really interesting. So Miles uses his first come on people. I feel like this is very much like we're getting uh, nicknames yeah. here. We're getting sort of the miles with the wordage kind of a, a miles that we, mm-hmm. we are used to. This is very familiar, Miles. I didn't, in the way that we've talked about how you don't remember much of season one because you know the other seasons better and you, you got used to them before mm-hmm. you were able to see season one. I am having a, a similar trouble, which has kind of been mentioned a, a couple other episodes about how watching this with new eyes and really trying to watch it as if I'm seeing it for the first time and what strikes me, mm-hmm. I don't like Miles yet. Oh, no. I, I, there have been a couple where I, I feel... I like him in this episode. Well, I, what I was going to say was this is the first episode where I start seeing the uh, the competent Miles that I remember from childhood okay. enjoying. all right. But even in this first opening, this first scene, I'm still... This is a moment where I was like, wow, I don't, I don't like Miles yet. As a, as a, if I was a new watcher... There have been a couple moments that have endeared him to me, but overall, I'm still very annoyed by him. And it isn't until a little bit later in this episode where I went, there's my Miles. There's the there's the character I like. I didn't realize how irritating I find I found him, and not in a fun way. <laughs> he, he's coming. Yeah. The Miles we love is coming. And exactly. I see it for the first time in this episode. Yes. So they're trying to focus. They have to come up with a light story to sort of balance the segments. And no one can figure it out. And everyone's distracted, particularly Murphy. She's pretty sure they put MSG in her sweet and sour shrimp. And that's all she can focus on. She's getting itchy. Her eye is doing this amazing twitch thing. It's Mm -hmm. the things that Candace Birkin can do with her eyes Mm -hmm. is shows her, her comic genius. And I, I've never seen anyone do it specifically the way that she does, but her eyes are so funny. Mm-hmm. I wrote, how do you even do that? I can't even wink. Oh, I can't wink either. Yeah, it really makes me sad. I'm very sad I can't wink. I also look like I'm having like a mild like 
seizure stroke when I try to do it, and it really amuses people. I literally look like I'm blinking. Yep. Because I'm blinking. But I can blink really fast, so go me. Okay. But I am, I am very impressed by and inspired by her eye work. So they're interrupted by Eldon. Oh, um, wait, I'm sorry. Oh, yes. It's just that Frank has a fortune cookie. Oh, I forgot about the fortune cookie. And he reads it, and he goes, the generous will laugh, but the lonely will move on. Then he pauses and does the same look that we just saw with the coffee maker out and goes, what the hell does that mean? It also gets a really big laugh. It's a huge laugh. I want to know what, what the takes were beforehand, if there was right? something more. T- I mean, it is funny in its own, but it, it, there's a laugh like there was something that yeah. happened in rehearsal or something. Yeah, something inside or this is the second take and something happened last yeah. time and they're laughing at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Eldon shows up and Diane, by the way, confirms in the commentary that this is Robert Pastorelli's coat, which I thought I had heard. Awesome. Yeah. It's apparently his lucky coat. And she thinks he had it since he was a teen. But the overalls actually belong to Bill uh, Hargate, the uh, costume designer. And Aww. they're very dear to him because they were his father's. What love is put into I this know. costuming? So, so Eldon wouldn't usually come to her place of business. And as soon as he walks in, it takes Murphy a second, but she realizes it's payday. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's a flea market in Calvert County. I'm looking for a hood ornament off a 55 Pontiac Chief. Maybe a set of juice glasses. <laughs> so I howled with laughter uh-huh. at the juice glasses yeah. because for some reason now, as an adult, I can look back and remember these sort of, uh, you know, flea markets that would happen in my childhood, like in the the train station parking lot. And that's how random it would be. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, we we didn't have flea markets where I was growing up because that's more of like a, a oh, city it? thing. Interesting. Um, so I would see them on in movies and stuff like that. I was like, oh, that's what city people go and do, like a large flea market. We just, you spent especially summer days looking in the paper for rummage sales. Oh, that makes sense. So that's where, it, like, and I remember everyone had the like patterned juice glasses, which I see less and less nowadays in homes. But what I love is places like anthropology and stuff like that are oh, bringing yeah. back juice glasses and like kitschy little decorated styles which I absolutely love because the old timey Midwestern girl in me really wants to have a set of juice glasses but they just seem so redundant no I literally (laughs) remember and I'm sure I went to more of them but the only memory I have is a flea market where my mom got these really amazing 1920s you know martini glasses Mm -hmm. not that we would drink martinis and Mm -hmm. I got the 1990 brochure to the Grammy Awards good girl yeah well Bette Midler was in it well I collected juice glasses from the back when places like at McDonald's and Pizza Hut and those places would have those like franchise yeah, those are sales. Great. And so I had like a whole set of things from from those places. And that's what I think of when I hear juice glass. <laughs> so Murphy promises she's gonna go in her office. She spends a lot of time looking for cash, by the way. A lot of time a lot looking of time for cash. A lot of time looking for cash, but a scene had to happen. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he doesn't have time. Felicia is circling the block and she's never driven stick. Yay, continuity. Also, I highly doubt she hasn't driven a stick. But um bum. <laughs> then Corky comes in off the elevator with ice cream and her coat over her shoulders. Gorgeous and- indigo color on her. It's that crop jacket, which I don't want, but man, she sells it. And she took a walk around the block and it really cleared her head and it's such a beautiful night. Except some strange woman in a truck almost mowed down five people in the crosswalk. Also, Eldon's face watching her during this entire section, I screen capped. And the, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but when she does the pitching, pitching, spitting on Frank, there's a section where he's just standing behind her with this beaming face of love. And I screen capped it for all of you. 
he's enamored with her, and it's lovely. And to go back to Murphy's Pony, this is something that the Barnett and Robert came up together Mm -hmm. that then the writers integrated into the script. Because it's so charming. It's, of course, he's enamored with her, and he just thinks she's this beautiful unicorn. And I love, because even in the kind of lecherous way he speaks to her in this section, it's that difference between someone who is an entitled creepazoid who thinks like, oh, I'm going to get this. And more just like, he is just sincerely throwing his best work at her because <laughs> he yeah. just loves her. I love that you call her a unicorn to him because yeah. he's never seen such a mythical creature. Yes, she is mythical. She is the Pegasus. Well, in the commentary, Diane felt that, uh, and I'm sure the writers, I should say, that this was a way to bring Eldon out of the house, mm-hmm. uh, bring him into you know the gang. And they thought it was a story, you know, his love for her, that they could maybe ride for the whole series. Mm-hmm. And it's great to just, yeah, pull everyone out of their normal space. And it's nice, it's nice to see Eldon and have a, have a, a reason I believe that we are seeing Eldon. Like, it's yes. not just a, like, oh, look, Eldon's suddenly in the office. Like, I actually completely follow that. Yeah. She's stuck there till midnight. She wasn't home when she planned to. He needs to go to the flea market. Like, it all works for yeah. me. And they're very good. They're at not shoehorning. Not at all. So Corky has the perfect idea. Miles says, you already told her, I don't think the show is ready to follow Nancy Reagan on our first trip back to the grocery store. Um, please tell me you pulled the same New York Times article that about, I did. About Bush? About Bush going to the supermarket? Of course I did. <laughs> so here's the thing. I just want to, and I'll put this in the show notes, it's the Bush Encounters of Supermarket is amazed article, right? Yes. Oh, go well, ahead. Because I think we're about to say the same point, actually, mm-hmm. which is inaccurate and blown up in in spin. But what I what I find interesting is, you know, we talk a lot about people spinning interpretation of events um, for their side or the other side um, in in news these days. And I just, I wrote down that I think it's classic newspaper lampooning, that they took a moment where maybe he looked a little perplexed and turned it into, he's the biggest idiot who has never seen this fancy supermarket thing that's ever happened. I believed that George Bush Mm -hmm. didn't know how to use a scanner. Yes. And it turns out it's not real. It's not real at all, actually. And, but I also am very amused that we said this about George Bush Sr., having no idea about the idiocy, idiocy that was to come. No, he did not. So Corky calls Miles the office comedian, and I wrote, <laughs> Miles is punchy, but everyone's really tired. Yeah. So Corky pretty much taunts them. You know, she has this great idea, and she's not going to tell them. They're going to keep pitching and pitching and pitching until you rot, because nothing will be good is my idea. Pitching, and that's when she spits on Frank. He's like wiping away his eyes. <laughs> Which I want to think was something that Joe did and was not in the script. But yes. I, I, so I, I loved that he did that. Kudos um, to her delivery. Kudos to his selling. Yeah. Her deli- or maybe she actually spit on him in rehearsal. Uh-huh. And so they just kept it. <laughs> they just kept it. So apparently the writers really wanted Corky to save the day. And Faith <laughs> loved that. So Eldon is just, again, looking at her with love. And she notices and she goes, may I help you? Hello, I'm Eldon. Yes. And I love you. Oh, how sweet. Does security security know you're here? With this nod like she's speaking to a simple child. I... Every time we got to that point, I had to say it like the delivery that Faith gives on that line is wonderful. It's so... And his, too, just like... And uh, (laughs) Eldon, I love you. (laughs) It's just so good. 
And so then Murphy emerges from her office. Obviously, the cash was hidden somewhere in a deep, dark place in her office. It's What's interesting is if she was still drinking and smoking, I would have assumed <laughs> that she was getting some, like, calming, relaxing substance in while she was in there. But now that she isn't, I'm like, what are you doing in there? Yeah. Maybe she was just punching a pillow. Maybe it was in different areas of the office. <gasps> Ooh, she's hiding. Because she gives him cash on mm-hmm. the barrel head. I love that word, yes, barrel head. Yes. It's so particular to Murphy yes. and gives to her character. Mm-hmm. I also love the way Candace comes in and she kind of leans on one hip and like, gives him the money. I'm awesome. Yeah. It's it's really just, pew, you know. Pew, pew. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's awesome. I got everything going on. Yeah. And then, and then on the commentary, when she comes out, Diane literally says, look at that belt. And I started laughing because I went, oh, my God, we're Diane. Yes. Look at that belt. Look it's a that, great belt. Yeah. She said the cuff and the belt. She felt that's very classic Murphy Brown. Yes. That's something. Speaking of classic Murphy Brown attire, it's never delicate. Like the the cuffs are are overstated the belt is overstated they're strong but they're still feminine yeah but there's nothing like delicate and prim no even when she wears like a an evening dress it is a statement it is bold her she has like art deco earrings like even when she's at her most feminine there's nothing i would never see her in a simple gold chain everything reflects who she is in her personality it's beautifully styled congrats guys so eldon decides he's gonna stay because he does, he's never seen Murphy work, but he's just in love with Corky. Yep. Uh, because they can't fit everyone around the glass table, Corky sits on like a little high chair. She's up above everybody. Uh, exactly. And I thought, what a very particular piece of placing. Mm-hmm. But also she looks adorable. She looks adorable. And I also love that visually we're giving Corky, who's about to triumph, a, a moment of, of glory. Yeah. So she's high above them, just like eating her ice cream. <laughs> I was like, Miles looks so tired. Oh, he's so tired. And, you know, she's again taunting them and Murphy goes, just tell us already. So she pauses and just triumphantly says, Phil's. Well, first of all, she says it's right under their noses mm-hmm. and they'd be hot, hot, cold. So uh, it's going to be Phil's 70th anniversary next week. Isn't it going to be the 100th soon? Yes, it is. Didn't we see that on, we did. on Instagram? We did see that on Instagram. We talked about it on the show. Mm-hmm. And then if no one knows, if you go to Dying English's Instagram, there's a great picture of the writers in front of Phil's, which mm-hmm. is on the Warner Brothers back lot. It's the part that's not part of the tour, so yeah. it's part that people can't see. Murphy's townhouse actually is on the tour, mm-hmm. funny enough. And, huh, is Wonder Woman's house from the Linda Carter sure series. Sure is Wonder Woman's house. Hence the gold cuffs, exactly. probably. Murphy Brown is Wonder Woman. Bing, bing, bing. Someone asked in the comments, you know, if the show would be tackling the fact that it will be Phil's 100th anniversary. And 2019. Di- Diane said yes. <laughs> so look out for that in the revival. Very excited. So Murphy actually looks impressed. Everyone's sort of pondering it. Murphy says it may be the MSG talking, but she thinks it's a great idea. And then I wrote, Miles' first nickname. Corkster. The Corkster. She pulled through and gives her a nuggie. Ew. Weird. Ugh, it's so... And then um, everyone gets up and they're going to, you know, go to the, the elevator and leave. Wait, I just love that Eldon goes, did you come with that? Come up with that all by yourself? I guess you're the straw that stirs the drink around here. You cook? <laughs> She's so confused by him. Murphy, are you going to show your friend out? <laughs> She's so polite. Uh, she's such a, she is a classy dame. Yeah. And then I love when they're in the elevator and Murphy is just between them looking just, oh, God. <laughs> Poor Corkster. Yeah. Diane talked about that this elevator sort of, you know, 
bumper or button mm -hmm. was always something they really tried to come up with to have a, a joke and then have the elevator close. It's a great close of a scene. Yeah, it reminds me of sort of a Second City blackout. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I love that <laughs> as the elevator is closing, Eldon goes, you know, I never thought I was the marrying kind, but people can change. Murphy rolls her eyes, and Corky just looks towards the audience really uncomfortable. Oh, Corkster. Yeah. Classy to the end. So we are at Phil's. It is much later, and the crew is set up um, at the corner, the left corner of the bar for our viewing, uh, with Phil behind the bar, Corky seated at a, at a stool, um, all prepped and ready to, to interview him. Um, she's wearing that awesome teal blue suit outfit that she wears oh her hair is spot on she's got a string of pearls and miles is like amping up phil like like he's a boxer coach like he he's got his arm around him his his own jacket is off and he's talking to him and phil has his hands flat on the bar and he's looking out he looking like a boxer getting ready to go in and he says they need to get they need to get going because he can't suck in his gut forever and what I like is on the side of that, Corky is like sitting there and she's ready to go. And she's doing this slight thing where it looks like she's mentally maybe going through her notes. Cause she's doing this slight, she's slightly staring off and her head's nodding a little bit. And I'm like, I feel like she's like, she's being a professional. She's prepping. She's like, okay. And then I'm going to do it. Okay, cool. I didn't notice that. That's great. <laughs> I, I love my Corky. And Miles, he's like, all right, let's do this. He goes around and he sits down in a very classic Murphy Brown director's chair. Yes, those are familiar to us because mm -hmm. they're the same design that the backstage, behind-the-scenes people use because mm -hmm. they're all in the Murphy Brown book. All in this book. I was like, wow, I've seen that before. I love that. I I think that's a really nice little nod. They didn't try to make a different type of chair. It was no. the type they use. And same font and everything. Exactly. We see that the cue cards are ready. They're gearing up. I love that you can see the cue cards actually have writing on them, um, mm -hmm. which I'm going to screenshot and try and reverse so I can read it. And... And Corky launches into a very confident opening. She's been doing this for a while now. And she says, it may not look like just an ordinary bar and grill, the kind you'd find in any town in the USA. This isn't any town. and This is Washington, D.C. And this isn't an or ordinary bar. It's Phil's flip card. <laughs> oh, it's such a good joke. It's such a good joke. And it's an old joke. Yes. But she sells it so, so well. It's so, because it's so natural. And the thing that comes out of it, and what I think you probably notice as well, is that it doesn't come, the joke isn't sold by her realizing she did something wrong. It's by the, it's Miles yelling. Everyone else looks miserable. They like deflate next to him. And she is so defiant that it's not her fault. That's what I love about it. Yes. And what I like is that even Phil deflates. So this isn't the first time that the crew is sick of this. It's that Phil has seen this happen multiple times today. Oh, yeah. So it's not just a quirky thing. This is today quirky thing. And she says, she says, it's not my fault. If they're going to write flip card on the card, I'm going to say flip card. I told them not to do that. Which, kudos, Corky. That's a good point. Like She's like, hey, I gave you a solution. Stop putting this on. Also, why does it say flip card on the part that she's looking at? Because that doesn't seem like it would work. It's for her to know that they're going to flip the card and she has I, to wait. I know, but then why keep it on there? If she's asked you not to, like, this is a teamwork, people, ensemble. You're so on her side. I'm so on her side here because she's right. She's clearly embarrassed, but she has asked for a fix. She has asked for assistance, and they didn't listen. And, when, and then, <laughs> Lauren is laughing so hard at my defiance. So the, this is where I started to enjoy Miles, even though this particular part grossed me out a little bit but i love that miles in this particular section of the 
the interview process, he's really there to make to give whoever is in trouble what they need, the type of talking to that they need. Yes. Even though he's frustrated when he goes over and talks to Phil and Corky later, he's talking a different tone of voice. And in this, he's speaking to Corky the way he knows it's going to work. Even though I think that it's really infantilizing and slightly gross, the way he talks to, to Corky, it clearly works in this moment. So he goes over and he hugs her size and he's practically cooing to her. But oh, like, I thought it's okay, it was we're... funny. And again, you have a, a very specific prejudice toward Miles yeah. in, the, in the later, the same way that I was saying, like, I'm okay with Jake right now because I haven't met later Jake. In watching this, like, I haven't met later Miles, to me, this is gross. Um, knowing Miles later as a fan, yes, I think it's funny. But watching this with, with newer eyes, he goes over, hugs her side, he's practically cooing in her ear, and he's touching her hair, and then he kisses her side of face, but more her ear. It's just very intrusive for me watching as a woman now if I'm not well, bringing in later information. She does kind of push him away a bit. And that's what I like is that it's the words and everything. Like, it, again, it's like a boxer's coach. Like he's like, as if the boxer's going up and the coach is going up and massaging the shoulders. Like she's hearing it. She's hearing it. She, she's calm. She's ready to go. And then as he walks away, she fixes her hair where he touched it. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, kudos. See, for me, it's the whole thing. I think you're mm-hmm. right. I think if yeah. you isolate it, for me, it would seem a little weird. Yeah. But it's the combination of her just like, oh, no, like I'm fine. Like, stop. That in uh, him wanting to. And, and I think that this also shows that this is what Miles' strength is. He mm-hmm. knows how to take someone, know what will work for them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, encourage them because that's part of his job. Except also she's saying, ew, no, stop. And he kisses her ear. The ear part is a little weird. It's gross. It's, it's, you're touching a woman, you're in her space. She says stop. He does, he does eventually stop, but also it's a new time. Maybe don't touch a woman. She doesn't want to be touched. I think that it may have been interpreted that he was don't touch my hair, but I think you're right. Yeah, yeah it's just yeah. this is with new with new eyes. Yes. I recognize I know better about Miles, but if I was a new person watching, this is the reaction I would have. I actually do agree with that. That is, um, that is good. So anyway, so she got what she needed. <laughs> he got what he needed. She launches in, kills it, and you know turns to Phil and says, "This bar has been open with since your father in 1919. It's been open since President Truman, and then." She asks him, how does it feel to be reaching this milestone? And Phil freezes. Phil ruins the take because <laughs> he doesn't know what to say. Miles asks what's wrong. He says, you, you said I just had to stand up here and tell stories. You didn't say I had any, you didn't say anything about how do you feel questions. I think about feelings. <laughs> he can't, he doesn't want to talk about his feelings. So a little bit of backstory about Phil's from Diane, from the commentary. Um, it was modeled after a bar she knew in Buffalo since she was a kid run by a guy named Phil. Um, he had become kind of become their father confessor. And it was a little homage. The the whole backstory for Phil, it was his father's bar. And um, she says that Phil's kids will take over, which we now know because of a revival that his sister is taking over in his passing. Perhaps this is going to be addressed and we'll find out that his kids didn't want it. And so Phil Maybe, sweeps yeah. in. I don't know. I mean, some of his kids really didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. So that could be part of it, yeah. too. But also something interesting is that the bar was a bar that Diane went to in college. Yeah. The sort of the theater kids, you mm-hmm. know, after they were building sets, they would like go to this bar. I mm-hmm. kind of love that. Which is very accurate. I can say as, a, um, as an artistic college student back in the day, that is accurate. Um, uh, we also have information that Joel had to explain to Faith on how to hold a mic, being a stickler for detail. And the uh, the way she was holding it bothered them in a way that they can't say on the DVD. Well, it bothered Joel. Yes, is my understanding. He's a very he's a big stickler for detail, as we all should be. Yes. But the way that 
The way she says Diane it. says, she says that she she can't say it in a professional way. Which means, I mean... Which we can... I mean, should I say... Yeah. Um, so I feel like we can only guess that uh, he was telling her that she was holding it like a penis. Yes. That's probably what She was he probably said. looking like she was going to give it a blowy. Yeah. That, we can say that on this air, right? Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we use the that word... Really, pe- we that, say penis a lot. That really classy um, phrase I just used. Yeah. Uh, but I do have to say, as somebody who's grown up as a, as a singer and a performer, there are various forms of mic etiquette. And you can always tell how somebody first got used to a mic. Um, hopefully it's not by... Um, imagining that your mic is a penis but perhaps and whatever works for you but i can always tell somebody who does a lot of karaoke because those mics are not as um, high quality as other mics so you have to hold them a very certain way to be heard properly um as opposed to people who were trained with singing with a mic they know when to pull it away when when the voice is getting louder and you want to keep the sound levels the same there's a very specific pull away that you see a lot of the divas do when they get into their big notes that kind of stuff so you don't blow the system and um, newscasters also use them certain ways. I had a very um, interesting experience this last Comic Con. Um, for a lot of a lot of people on here probably know, but I, um, for the last what seven or eight years, have worked press at New York Comic Con, and um, we do a lot of interviews. And I won't name names, but I had a very negative Me Too era experience with a male hero of mine, who. Um, decided to grab my mic out of my hand and tell me the particular mic etiquette he wanted me to use in the interview in a very misogynistic, demeaning way. Um, I was, luckily, luckily I'm not new to this, so I was able to shrug it off and, you know, experience it. It was gratifying to see all of the other people all, because I was one of only a few women in that room, it was very nice to see the other men on my team as well as the teams around us waiting in the step and repeat, see their reaction to that because it clearly was overstepping. But just saying when you're interviewing people and so on, there is also a certain etiquette and both the the interviewers and the interviewees have preferences as far as how they want the mics to be handled. So it is not um, not out of line for Joel to be a stickler because there is a lot of opinion on how to handle a mic. And I'm glad that he was. Yes. Because uh, the show is wanting to feel as real to life as mm-hmm. possible. These people are real. And as an actor, I would want to know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to look like I'm a professional. It's, mm-hmm. I don't want somebody taken out because it looks like I'm, you know, fondling my mic in the wrong way. So the, the reaction to this is that Corky throws her hands up, says she can't work like this. Miles goes over to the bar and he does a thing where he puts his hands down on the bar, his head drops. And then he all of a sudden stands back up and he's in producer, director mode. Because he tells him, he says, we're not here to invent the wheel. We're just here to relax and have fun. And it's the perfect way to tell them, guys, guys, it's just us. We're just talking. It's fine. It's such a good director moment. He's really good at his job. Yep. I have to say that when Miles puts his head, you know, down like Mm -hmm. that, I wrote, hi, Miles. We've missed you here in season one. Welcome to the table, my boy. There's our Miles. Yeah. Yeah. So he... Ask Corky to jump to her next question. We'll, we'll move past the the feelings for Phil. And she asked him what the most unforgettable moment at Phil's is. And he says, well, there are a few things. Dwight Eisenhower recreated the Normandy invasion using beer nuts and Cheez-Its. Or the time that Bob Woodward locked himself in the men's room with no paper. And Phil wouldn't give him any until he told him who Deep Throat was. Phil knows who Deep Throat is. Oh, he does. Yeah. Uh, Diane says that he's the filing cabinet of Washington. He Then he pauses... 
and gets a smile on his face. And he says, but if you're looking for favorites, I guess my choice would be, and he has this big smile. He has this little exhale of slight laughter. It says, first time I met Murphy Brown. And the camera does this to the left. Whoosh. And we are in 1977. Jimmy Carter is sworn in as a 39th president of the United States. Fleetwood Mac's Grammy-winning album, Rumors, is released in the United States. Chuck E. Cheese Pizza Time Theater first opens in San Jose, California. The Supremes perform their final concert together at Drury Lane, London, and then disband permanently. The New York City blackout of 1977 lasts for 25 hours, resulting in looting and other disorder. David Berkowitz is captured in Yonkers, New York, after over a year of murders in New York City as the son of Sam. And the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, dies in his home in Graceland. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. I love that <laughs> camera. <laughs> the whoosh. It's, it's, it's not, great. It's great. The mm-hmm. fact that the blurring colors. Yep. Barnett, this is a, such a great Genius tool. Move. And no one has used it. Mm-mm. It reminds me of the, um, oh, what are those old school projector things? Like it's a like carousel? Spin, yeah. The, like, oh, it's where you can see the horse running. Oh, what are those called? I'll find it later and feel much smarter. But it's like spin, spin, and we're in a new place. And cut the gauze. Yes. Cut to the gauze, I should cut say. Cut to the gauze. Although only really on one camera. So Murphy walks into Phil's, and I wrote, like, a young Diane Keaton. I wrote a cross between Diane Cannon and Diane Keaton because of the hair. Stop it. No, stop it. I have Diane Cannon written be- afterwards because I just recently made my boyfriend watch Out to Sea because all I really want in my entertainment is... Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon acting together. Sure. And so the other day I was like, well, okay, Michael, you have a choice. We're either going to watch Out to Sea. I think what I sold him with was Brent Spiner. Or I was like, you can watch Jack Lemmon in My Fellow Americans with James Garner because I also need to watch that right now. So everyone, yes, I do just watch a bunch of people out of my generation because I love them so much. But Diane Cannon in that movie her hair and her carriage and everything is straight this moment. Yes. It's amazing. It's the same type of like kind of beachy long pants kind of and, and that she, hair that's cascading. And the hat. And the like, hat. She's worn hats like that. That's exactly that's what like she the looks 70s, like. The 70s, yeah. So Murphy sits down at that immediate entrance on Phil's bar, that short side, like she does all the time now. And she orders a Scotch Rocks with a twist. Never mind a double. It's a dark day. Elvis Presley just died. She said she heard it on the radio, and the next thing she hears is Sean Cassidy singing Da Do Run Run Run, and I almost hit an abutment. By the way, because we covered Darlene Love on the show, Mm -hmm. that line means something more to me now. Right? Also, abutment is a word that Diane seems to like to use. It's used a lot. It is, Mm -hmm. because people try to correct it for me and tell me that it's not a word. You're like, oh no, I know this word. (laughs) Like, I think, Lord, I think you mean this. I was like, no. No, I mean an abutment. It's a thing. (laughs) It's also a great word that we don't use enough. No, we don't. It has died, and that's why people don't recognize it. I think so. They think I mean an embankment, and I'm like, no. That is probably. It's an abutment. An abutment. I wrote here that I I love all of the business at the Mm. bar in the scene. Him making it, her with the cigarette, like everything they're doing, it's just so natural and I immediately believe this conversation is coming out of it. Mm-hmm. It makes it very natural. This business really shows what a great actress Candace Bergen yes. is. With the cigarette, and we'll talk a second about one of our mm-hmm. favorite moments, and and sitting down and, and feeling the heat and, mm-hmm. and everything is like, you just watch her hands yeah. during most of this yes. scene. She, and yeah, it's it's so natural and it's it's a thing of, it's done a lot in acting classes as a as a tool to get people to relax, is to give yourself business. Mm-hmm. Because the second you, your, your physical brain is doing this, it releases you mentally and it can make things sound a lot more natural. 
Now, granted, it's why some people, actors get very, very prop-oriented because they need that. But this is proof of why that's a, that's a tool that people often use because you just believe this conversation is coming out so naturally and she can do all this other stuff so it doesn't feel like a planned line. It feels like it's coming out of the action. Speaking of props mm-hmm. or wigs. Mm. Yeah. So apparently, according to the commentary, mm. Candace loved this wig. I love that wig. It's a great wig. She loved it so much that she ran around the entire Warner Brothers lot in the wig, knocking on doors, trying to find out if anyone would recognize her. She went to the executive dining room and just randomly would sit down at tables and see people knew who she was. I would totally do that. And so Diane felt, you know, because Candace loves the wig, we love the wig, and we love Murphy because Candace loves playing Murphy and it comes through. And I thought it was such a really great idea. It's real. It's it's a very endearing look on her. Phil asks what brings her to Washington. So she has an audition across the street. And right at this moment, he's getting her the drink. So we just heard her order scotch on the rocks. Mm-hmm. And so he shoots her the scotch with the rocks. And as they're talking about the job that she's auditioning for, she's actively taking, and also right in front of him, which is a little confusing, taking the, the ice out of the glass and putting it in the ashtray, which I wrote alcoholic warning. Yes. Because she's keep trying to keep it neat. Absolutely. But what I never seem to notice, now this scene is in on another plane. Yes. And so I know this scene very well. Mm -hmm. And I always love that moment. Um, I think I noticed it more as an adult. But exactly. It's it's showing that she, you know, already had alcoholic tendencies Mm -hmm. because she doesn't want the, the drink to be watered down. She wants the pure drink. But what I didn't notice, and I wonder if maybe because that, maybe her ordering the drink is not in on another plane. I have to go back and see that she asks for it that way. Exactly. Which is, a de- I think, a stage of denial or yeah. trying to, like, fake out people. Exactly. So she can say, well, I ordered it with ice. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, like about. it waters itself down. And I think for me, just from a getting really critical about the eye lines, the fact that she does it while Phil is looking at her and, like, it's part of the action while she's talking for me confuses me more. Because if she was trying to trick the bartender or the people around her that she gets it with rocks then I would have liked, if that was part of that subliminal messaging, I would have liked for her to have taken it out when he wasn't looking. I think it's more of a denial thing. Exactly. I think it's... I think she doesn't realize that she's hiding it right now. Yeah, because there are a lot of things, and and I am not close with anyone who is an alcoholic um, or have family members, so I apologize if this is incorrect to anyone who is more closer with someone. Yes, I don't want to... I I don't mean to offend anyone by saying alcoholic warning because that is a serious problem and... I think often um, dismissed in humor. But there are telltale signs. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they say that it is sort of a subconscious thing is you're trying to fake the world around you. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yourself. She, yeah, exactly. And so I think she's fooling herself into thinking that she's getting it with that. And then maybe just even out of habit, she takes it out. Yeah, I wonder if she isn't even thinking about it when she's taking it out. Like I, I could see her thinking about it when she orders the rocks, but not thinking about her automatic response to taking it out or maybe she tells herself i have an interview i'll have it with the rocks Mm -hmm. and then she just can't stop herself yeah now something interesting is that this is a moment that we both really loved Mm -hmm. and as i was running up my notes i thought oh we should check with corby if it was in the script or if it was a business that the actors came Mm -hmm. up with and (laughs) it became a bit of a whirlwind (laughs) yeah where um corby was about 99 percent sure that diane had come up with it she wanted to check with barnett barnett didn't remember so we were told to check with Steve Peterman, who checked with Diane, who said, oh, it's definitely a Candace Barnett thing. And then hours later, I wake up to an email saying, scratch that. Diane just texted me. This is from Steve. Uh, she checked the original script. She wrote it in. We were like, 
sorry. We were just curious. <laughs> yes, we didn't mean to to make it this long chain, but uh, still. But thank hel- you. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Hilarious. I think. I love that. I. It just makes me happy that we can ask this silly question yeah. and that people are generous enough with their their time and their memories to share that with us. Yeah, and so that was something specific that was to character, mm-hmm. and it's such a great little small little detail. It really is. It, yeah. I see it and I immediately ask questions in a good way about the characters and um, not about like, well, why did they do that? So they're talking about the position and Phil starts launching into an extreme knowledge of the position that she's applying for. And he says, considering they're considering a woman for one of the positions. So it's going to be an uphill battle at the network. And she's looking at him like, how do you know this? And we get for her, what is for her the first I'm Phil. And then as he walks away, they, she starts throwing trivia challenges at him Mm -hmm. and back and they clearly both impress each other. They really do. And something interesting for people, just to give you a little, a little perspective, that it's going to be an uphill battle at the network for a woman. Mm-hmm. Barbara Walters um, was the first woman to host the evening news. It was 1976. So it was just a year before. Exactly. The first woman to anchor a primetime sort of news magazine, at least that I could find, so I may be wrong, was Weekend, which was Linda Ellerbe. Yep. My Linda Ellerbe. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And Barbara Walters, by the way, in 76, got a lot of flack from people. And just for some more perspective as well, is that the first anchor of 60 Minutes wasn't until 1984 with Diane Sawyer. That's not that long ago. No, and not that long (laughs) in connection to 1977. Exactly. So that's the uphill battle they're talking about. It's if, And this is something we're going to talk about in a little bit. If there was going to be a female, it was going to be one female. At, At the point that even Murphy Brown aired the fact that there were two females at the desk was a big deal. The fact that it was half and half. So it's significant she's showing up for this and dressed the way she is. And Mm -hmm. Phil says he recognizes her because she's a foreign correspondent. She explains that. And she proceeds to say, I know how to chant Jimmy Carter is the devil in 27 languages. And then she takes a breath spray, sprays her mouth, and does this great wince. The wince is great. (laughs) And then Frank Fontana enters the joint. Frank Fontana. To the most huge, uproarious Laughter. Oh, the the reaction is gold. As if the crew hasn't seen the wig. I really want it is ridiculous. And the mustache on top of it. Oh, the mustache is the best. Oh my gosh. His mouth looks so different. Mm-hmm. The way he's speaking. So Diane said that Joe loved this wig because of the female attention he got on set from it. <laughs> I I also wondered maybe was there was it positive attention? He thought it was. Okay. Hey. It was a different time. He had hair. I think that was the big thing. More positive than the toupee? No, but still hair. I feel like that's why the the crew was laughing so much. Yeah, because it is, as opposed to the toupee, which is kind of, you don't quite realize until it's called out. This is significantly different. (laughs) Also, the 70s, where no one apparently had hair products. Uh, Yes, no one. It was just wild and free in that summer heat. Yeah. So Frank is much like Murphy dressed in these sort of pales, oranges, dark tones. We'll see more of that later. It's a great time for fashion. There's an old car. It was a great detail. Mm-hmm. I had mm-hmm. never noticed in the back there, which is great. Um, you know, he moves up to the bar. He orders a club soda because he's got an audition. You know, unlike Murphy, who was drinking away. Drinking. The scene that's coming up, Diane says that she really loves to write these sort of, you know, she felt this scene is very Hepburn and Tracy-esque. Oh, it is. And it really establishes sort of the deep friendship between Frank and Murphy, mm-hmm. which I definitely agree. And, you know, sometimes actors surprise the writer and, and the two of them really took this to a place that she hadn't imagined. And Yeah, and again, that's, that's totally why I think he submitted it, because yeah. it really brings out the best in them. So he comments on the heat, 
which of course, you know, uh, makes Murphy kind of, you know, jokingly say what Phil said before. Mm-hmm. So Frank thinks, oh, this woman is talking to me. So he says, hi, don't I know you? And then this is why Murphy is my hero. Yes, it's so good. <laughs> Let me get this out of the way up front. Just because I said something to you doesn't mean I'm looking to get picked up. It's in my nature to talk to people. So let's not assign any subtext to any conversation that might end up between us in the next few minutes. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah, slow clap. Good job, girl. I mean, I've literally invited a man to my improv show, and he thought it was a date. Oh, God. I like to talk to people, too. Doesn't mean that I'm asking you on a date. Again, just because I look at you doesn't mean that that was an opening. I wanted to be... You knew I was going to be on the stage, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Frank says break out the might all and I uh, hate him so much right now but it, it feels very of the time so I'm is. okay with it also again okay it's, it? they're willing to say might all on the air mm. like I they've said it before I think right yeah but yeah. that idea of like we're, we're normalizing these jokes that we can make these kinds of jokes and also because he doesn't get away with it he doesn't no he says that he's gonna take take this again and, and I love what Joe does is he kind of yes it's so good it's such a great little mannerism thing. Like, I probably didn't even realize he was doing it. It just shows that an actor who's very comfortable. It's very playful. Yeah, and very I love playful. It. Uh, very frank. And he introduces himself again, and we get that great Frank Fontana, Murphy Brown oh. meeting for the first time. My heart grew five sizes. And Frank eventually confesses that he has this audition too, but he's never been on camera before. You know, he's been w- working for the New York Times. And Murphy figures out that he was nominated for a Pulitzer for this, you know, a couple part piece on the mafia, got a lot of press, and. Frank's like, yeah, that's me. And I really think he is sort of, uh, hum- I think it's humility. I yeah, don't think, I think that he it, is actually humble about yeah, it. Yeah, I don't think that it, it's an ego thing at all. Mm-hmm. But then Murphy goes, because we think that it's going to be, she's going to compliment mm-hmm. him. And she goes, I found the piece to be very egocentric. <laughs> <laughs> I love how she calls him. And he just goes, see, see what you did. I haven't known you for five minutes and already I don't like you. But he does like her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Murphy gets that, you know, he's definitely hitting on her. You know, he can't hide it. And can't he does this great line. She's he goes, a beautiful woman. She is. And he doesn't know that he's going to have zero interest in her later. Absolutely. Of course I'm trying to pick you up. It's a spontaneous thing that guys do. It's a primal urge like how we invented fire. <laughs> doesn't have to mean anything. I love that so much. It's so good. <laughs> she tells him to go to a disco. He says he's never been to a disco. She says he has BGs written all over him. <laughs> I love he how it hates, offends him. He hates the Bee Gees. Admit it, you took hustle lessons. And what do you listen to, Casey and the Sunshine Band? <laughs> and this is great, too. Murphy goes, I don't own a record made past 1968. Ooh, hipster. And now, ladies and gentlemen, you're at the point of the show that proves my entire worth in life. This is Lauren's moment. This is my moment. I'm probably going to f*** it up, too. I, please do. Come okay. on. I've seen it on another plane way too many times because I can do this. Johnny's in the basement mixing up the medicine. I'm on the pavement thinking about the government. Man in trench coat, badge out, laid off. Says he's got a bad cough, wants to get it paid off. Look out, kid, it's something you did. God knows when, but you're doing it again. I didn't know that was Bob Dylan for a really long time. I can also guarantee that she looked at no words for that. Uh, yes, you were my um. I was here. I was honoring that. I try to do it in one breath because it's two people, but it's really hard. So uh, it's almost weird to me to hear it in one voice. I know. Like it does feel like a back and forth to me. That's why I can barely breathe when I do it. I have to go to the gym more. It's beautiful. Thank you very much. Excellent work. So this is Subterranean Homesick Blues, which I didn't know until I was in my 20s. I definitely did not know the title of that (laughs) song for a really long time. 
I graduated grad school and someone gave me a burned CD of Bob Dylan for the first time and I'm listening to it and falling in love with Bob Dylan and it gets to the song and I went, oh. 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 Oops. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, and uh, this is how they bond. Mm-hmm. That they are both the same kind of people and they are on the same page. Well, and I think it's very fitting because this particular piece by Dylan um, was really iconic of that time of the beat generation. He had been really, we have, we have a great article from bobdylan.org.uk and they specifically say, this was Dylan's first successful attempt to integrate the emotions of the beat generation, which he had understood from Allen Ginsberg and others combining the thought of the moment with three minutes of everything that was happening in the world mid-1960s. This, this song makes a lot of sense to me. And, it, and I think it tells a huge story that this is the song that they recite to each other. I agree. It says a lot about who they are, what inspired them. Allen Alan Ginsberg, in particular, his work as in, in art and thought was incredibly informative to a very specific generation. And um, I, I love this song. I didn't even realize what a big deal the song was when I was a kid and, no, and liked either. it. Mm-hmm. Same thing with, I, I was raised by a father who played a lot of Pete Seeger and Joan Baez in this time period. So to me, it was just like, yes, art, yes, feelings. Uh, but I think it says a lot that also these two who we have seen, you know, the two that flunked out of Est and these things that were all about like in looking internally and finding this like this inner, inner peace and self-awareness who scoff at that but are so attracted to this art form. And I think it, it shows them for the actual intellectual softies that they are. They're yeah. not just the brash They're brash not. jokesters that they pretend to be. Um, and I think it's really beautiful that that's what they connect over. On the commentary, Diane says that this was something that Steve Peterman knew. But we've heard from two sources, not to speak out of turn, that it was probably Tom Seeley. But everyone in the writing staff is amazed that even one person knew all the lyrics to this. Right. Right. I have to say, though, watching Murphy Brown as an actor taught me how I memorize. I'm auditory. Yeah. So because of that, I very easy learned how to memorize scripts because I put them on my phone. Mm-hmm. So this was actually very helpful to me, to my acting career. So this is one of Diane's actually favorite moments in the entire series, particularly between the two of them. She feels they were running on all cylinders. So Frank asks when her audition is, and she says it's in 10 minutes. And she's had about like two drinks already. I think she orders a third one. I can't remember now, but she's, she's drinking a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Frank is in shock. You know, she better go change fast. But Murphy, you know, goes, this is the way that I'm dressed. This is who I am. This is me. You know, she's not a Barbie doll. She's a serious journalist. Um, So they need to get going. And Frank offers to pay. But she says no. You know, by the way, with a cigarette dangling from Candace's mouth, it's so specific. I love it so much. I've been been acting my entire life and I've yet to be able to pull off how to act with a cigarette dangling out of your mouth. No, and you can hear everything that she says. And it's still, there's even a point I think when she is lighting a cigarette, like it's not like you can't hear her. Mm -hmm. So they go back and forth about who's going to pay. And Murphy says, you know, it's a 70. She can pay her her share. And and Frank goes, half? Who taught you math? Burt Lance? (laughs) Burt Lance again. Yeah, another Burt Lance joke. Got to rip into Burt. Yeah. So again, Murphy sprays her mouth with the the spray so that she doesn't have alcohol on her breath. Mm-hmm. She winces every time. Oh, and cigarettes. That's right. It's a great combo in that mouth it, right now. It doesn't work, though, because I had a math tutor who smelled of nicotine and mint. You don't get that out. It does not get out that quickly. It was so gross. Yeah. It doesn't work. So she goes, it was interesting meeting you, which I love. <laughs> it's so good. Like, they are not good yet. Yeah. And then they banter on their way out. 
And then apparently, according to the Murphy Brown book, there was a point where we don't see his face, but Phil's consoling a guy named Ron. And then it's okay, he can run again in 80. You won't be too old. I'm kind of glad they cut that. Yeah. (laughs) A little too much. Um, So we are back in the present at Phil's, and it is pandemonium. Phil is now standing at the front at a podium with a mic. Like, we're in, like, some either we're at a speaking engagement or at some really huge chain restaurant uh, back in the day before they had little buzz buzz things. It's a Bennigan's mic. Yep. And, or we're at a graduation. And <laughs> uh, we have this out-of-towner couple, and they are trying to get in. He's like, uh, they, they want to know when they can have a reservation. He says, well, maybe next week. And the woman looks at him and says, we saw this place on television, and if I don't get to eat here, I'll die. I'll die. I'll die. I wrote in just all caps, Jesus H. Christ, this is the job I'm leaving. So I guess it's as good a time as any to let the people know I am moving to go to grad school. Yay! Yay for um, the digital world that we can still be doing this remotely. So there will be uh, no interruption for y'all. But I'll miss seeing your face I in know. front of me. and We'll have to do so many Skyping your... and visits. But the, the current day job I have, which I have mentioned in passing... Um, is at a major restaurant that is highly desired, especially by tourists. And I won't give away specifics, but I deal with a lot of people who call when certain items from our menu are mentioned on certain very unfortunately popular shows. And it brings out just some of the most interesting people who call and say that they saw our blank on blank today or come in and demand to do the thing that famous person mentioned on air that they had this combo of that's not on our menu, but now they all have to eat it. I just started getting hives watching this couple speaking to me. I'm like, oh, I hate it. So <laughs> this is a real thing for people in tourist popular locations. And they clear she her intensity because she doesn't say, I'll die. She just says, I'll die. I'll die. And so he says, okay, well, um, there will be a two-hour wait and that offers that they can kill some time by browsing the gift shop. There's a sale on commemorative plates. <laughs> he then leans down and does to me, which is such a quintessentially 90s joke, and speaks into the mic saying, Donner, party of four. I feel like I saw this joke in everything as a kid. I didn't know what the Donner party was until I was a lot older, and I knew to make jokes about the Donner party if it was about people waiting to get a reservation or a skeleton. But I didn't really know why. And that's because twisted writers like this beautiful room of minds wrote so many of these jokes into things. I have one of those. Isidore Duncan. Mm. The the scarf joke. Yep. I didn't get it, but I was in so many sitcoms. And when I finally got it, I went, oh, God. I love and appreciate you twisted dark minds. Well, Diane said this was an in-joke in the writer's room. Oh, of course. Also, just in case you're wondering, there's a game out now called the Donner Dinner Party. Oh, good. Which looks hilarious. Uh, There's a so, great book on it that came yes. out this year. It's, it's a really tragedy, good. everyone. It's a tragedy, yeah. um, But, you know, I enjoy humor. So after he says this, I just wrote, there are so many little old tourist ladies, and they are co- they are just filing in from the front. They're not even stopping at his podium. They're just filing back to the gift shop, looking around, taking pictures. He's yelling over them, no pictures, please. And I love that right in front of him, not in the hero table, which we'll talk about in a minute, but in the table just before it, there's a woman in a lavender blouse with puff sleeves and a little tie at the neck with giant, like, 1980s glasses, which I love. 
and she looks so happy. She's clearly hiding laughter at the pandemonium around her, but covering with just being so happy to be there, and it cracks me up. And through all this chaos, the gang shoulders themselves in, and they're saying they need to eat quick, they need to get out of there, and Phil tells Mild, no, he told him that he has to make a reservation. Murphy looks over and says there's there's someone at their table. And this is what Diane calls the hero table. That's the the classic table where you always see Murphy and the gang either speaking to someone at or having a meal at. And Murphy goes over and starts taunting the guy who's sitting there about how long he's going to take, which granted, it's one dude taking up the entire table. Yeah, that was an error on Phil's part, whoever sat them there. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. You need to work, be better when you're in customer hospitality service. And as she's saying they're taunting this guy, trying to get him to get up, we just hear, hey there, stranger. And what I love is the introduction is not, look, it's you, and wait for the audience to realize. She turns around and says, Linda Ellerby. Applause. Freakish applause. Everyone's so excited. I love it so much because at this point, Linda Ellerby's a big deal. It also reminds me of um, when we get to the Kelly Green episode. Look, everyone, it's Murphy Brown. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so like a, I'm going to say your name. Yeah. But Connie I, Chung. Connie Chung. So this is, um, now also remember, just for a reminder, we're in the present day fills. Mm-hmm. So this is post everything that we're about to see happen. But Linda Ellerby and Murphy Brown are contemporaries. And they are, have been up for the same things, as we will find out. And just for some reference, the amazing Linda Ellerby, who we have talked about in another episode, but she was a pioneer for women, not only in broadcasting, but also I would say in the in male-dominated workforces. Mm-hmm. She was the, her first anchor job was on weekend in 1974. Um, in 76, she became the first female co-anchor um, on the ABC Evening News. She was uh, working with Harry Reasoner. Is it Reasoner? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Okay. It was an ABC News program. It was a really big deal. And that she earned a million a year, which was a really big deal for a female. There wasn't a female anchor for 60 Minutes, as we talked about, until Diane Sawyer joined the show. And that was 84? 84. So the fact that this happened in 76 w- was so ahead of the curve. <laughs> the fact that this woman to be on a major ABC program, co-hosting equally with, with a man. That's why he says, like, Linda Ellerby. So as we have talked about in the past, because um, I'm just going to post articles about Linda Ellerby on the show notes because she's amazing. You need to read up on her. The reason I knew her so well was that she hosted um, one of the longest running Nickelodeon series, Nick News with Linda Ellerby. It was 178 episodes and it ran from 1992 to 2015. It's an American educational children's and teenagers television show. And, and it was all about educating our children with the actual current events and news around them. And I think it's a huge, it and, and my own mother's uh, political awareness and social awareness are many of the reasons why I felt empowered as a child to know my world around me. It wasn't just about hearing, it's the idea of, you know, I'm a Republican because my dad's a Republican. I'm a Democrat because my mom's a Democrat. It, I was given the same current events that my parents were. And the idea of trusting our children to know about the world around us and not just hide them behind your interpretation or your packaging. They, we were given current Now, granted, the current events, if they were very dark and, and upsetting, were we were not given all of the details of things that were horrific and, and troubling. But you were given social topics, political topics, economic issues. And the format of the show was intended so children and parents could watch together and both learn from it. And I just think that she is such a a huge symbol of what it is to really educate 
all of your citizens and not just the ones in power, the ones who are always making the decisions. If we're a lot, I'm, I'm passionate about this because we can start voting at 18. And if you haven't been educating your kids on what is happening in your country and how your your political system works and what they have available to them as citizens, then you're really shortchanging the first decade of them being eligible participating citizens. And something that I think Linda Ellerby did up until only three years ago was really be a champion for not not using kid gloves and making sure that our kids are aware and participating and educated and trusted. And that's why I love her. I agree. And something I didn't realize listening back to the commentary um, is how much of a consultant Linda Ellerby was and how much Diane felt because she had read her book that she was using a lot of Linda to base on Murphy. Mm-hmm. Something also interesting, I found an interview with Linda Ellerby talking about being on the show. And she said that eventually Diane had to give her a line reading because she felt like she wasn't being Linda Ellerby enough. <laughs> and she said, just just tell me how to say it. <laughs> just tell me how to say it and I'll do it. Yep. She, she wasn't being her enough for Diane exactly. that she needed. No, you need to be your the, the other you. So Linda's there and they are they're commiserating as friends. Uh, Linda says there's no way she would have missed the anniversary at Phil's. She wants to make sure she doesn't miss out on a commemorative plate. Good delivery there, Linda Ellerby. It was great. It was funny. Go, Linda. And they reminisce, and they talk about them both being up for the one female position at FYI. And Linda says that she really wanted that job, and Murphy plays, Murphy plays as if she didn't. And Linda says, you flew in from Zaire. Murphy says, oh, well, I had a date. And we are cue into our next scene is Linda saying, that's not the way I remember it. So we go whoosh and we are now drowning in browns and oranges and yellows. I'm so happy. I wrote, oh God, the 70s. I wrote, yay, 70s. I'm wearing that color right now. You I are actually. I love 70s get, color palettes. Let's get you an avocado appliance. Do you know what I would do if I could repli- I know you love them. We've talked about this. I just, I would be so happy. Where is my avocado green like refrigerator with like the actual like full length door handle mm. that screeches a bit too oh I just we had a similar refrigerator in my basement that mm-hmm. was tied so the children wouldn't hide themselves in it <laughs> but you could open it up a tiny bit and there was a can of tab in there <gasps> tab yeah so yes it is um it is 70s tastic and 70s tastic Linda Ellerby yes is on our screen lip glossed and this Beautiful. clip actually Linda recommended that they use so Which is awesome. we have Arvin Johns, who we've only heard about, mm-hmm. and now we're meeting, mm-hmm. and Jim, seventies Jim, <gasps> young Jim. I love him so much. Watching a clip of Linda on the FYI set, mm-hmm. as we mentioned, laden with browns and yellows, but also the font, the FYI font, is mm-hmm. definitely a seventies. They had a makeover at some point in the eighties. Yes, I love that we see what original FYI was. It's great. It's it's seriously really good job on the the set decorating it's and beautiful. the design guys. It's familiar guys. but older. Yeah. So Frank and Murphy come in and he doesn't understand why she's so calm. She says she's calm because she doesn't care. She gets the job. She gets the job. I actually kind of believe her. I know later mm-hmm. on because I had sort of forgotten that we had that scene mm-hmm. before when I was thinking about it in my head because. I sort of am out of place in my life where I do sort of feel that way, where I care a lot if I get it, absolutely. But, and I don't know if it's after being sick and when you're sick, you feel very um, helpless in a way that you can't control. Mm -hmm. You can't control what your body can and cannot do, Mm -hmm. even though your brain is still there. 
And I don't know, I feel like I've gotten to the point where I, I care, but I'm also like, okay, well, if this doesn't happen, there's nothing I can really do about it. So here we go. I kind of think that's maybe where Morphe is. I think there's also a quality of what we were saying about maybe with the ice of she doesn't realize how much True. she wants it. I think that's part um, of it, yeah. And I think because also the way she's talking about it, I'm not sure she realizes the scope of it yet. I think she's at a place where maybe everything, maybe she wants everything. Mm. And I don't think she realizes how much this will mean to her. Mm -hmm. She wants the job, but it's um, not to quote a future episode of ours, um, but there's an interview that we just had Mm -hmm. with the idea of part of um, the job when you are a freelance and you are someone who is, or like us who are auditioners, where you get very used to the audition you get very used to going for a lot of things and being and needing to move on to the next one. Yeah. And so I could see that she'll really want it when she's in the room and working on it because A, also she wants to win. I think yeah. Murphy wants to win. That's absolutely true. Absolutely. She wants a job, but she also knows that like she can continue and go do all the foreign, yeah. foreign correspondence. But she's, she's not going to compromise herself because she exactly. could compromise herself and get yeah. that job in a second. She won't do it. This job is not, to her, this job is not the end all be all. She knows she's going to be fine. Yeah. So Frank points out her competition and she goes, look at her, spray teased and lip gloss within an inch of her life. She looks like one of Charlie's angels. Glam shaming. And what I love is that, that Murphy is pretty much like, no, I can just do better. Mm-hmm. I, this is just, I'm just better than that. I'm number one, which is how Murphy got everything that she wanted because she always assumed that she was number one. Well, this is, and this is also Murphy pre-Devil with a Blue Dress. Where it's like either you are, you're the woman who doesn't rely on looks to get ahead mm-hmm. or you're a woman who relies on looks to get ahead. And there's definitely a bias of the person who chooses to be pretty on camera, potentially in her, the way she's saying is not trusting her own merit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I made the joke about glam shaming, which is a reference to a show I will not admit that I watch right now. But it, it the idea of if the point she was making was just, I'm better for this job, then why did she need to resort to to busting her looks? Hmm. If you're that confident that you are better, you are just better, then why do you need to resort to that? And that, for me, shows a bit of her insecurity. Okay. If you actually genuinely believe that you are the better choice, then why are you being so petty? I mean, Frank does say, I thought you didn't care. Mm-hmm. Which, to me, as a writer goes, oh, that's definitely cluing in that she does. Even though we've already had that previous scene. And that's scene. what I mean. Yeah. The way that she's talking like this, I think shows that she actually cares. And I think she's annoyed that she might not get the job because the pretty person gets it. Oh, yeah. I didn't think of it that way. And she resents that. But I don't I don't think it's a, a knock against looks. I think it's about that she... Re- I think she actually doesn't think that... You need to be able to, as she says later, mm-hmm. blow dried and teased and lip glossed mm-hmm. to give people the news. Because mm-hmm. Murphy is a feminist. Except, also, yes, to no. make the argument. I honestly think, I think both sides are true, honestly. She is knocking it, though. She mm-hmm. is making fun of somebody who chooses to look good. And it's also, it's just as feminist to want to look a certain way. Like, feminism, the equality of it, someone is allowed to want yes. to look a certain way as much as someone is allowed to not put the same effort in, and they should be treated by merit as equals. But we are also looking at Murphy Brown, who later dolls herself up on camera oh, yeah. as a professional. She Murphy Brown does not show up now in her, mm-hmm. like, in her dirty jeans and her baseball cap. She does the same thing. She gets dolled up as an anchor. So 
it is it's a it's commentary on who Murphy is when she walks in for this interview and the fact that she later gets the perspective. Yeah. That it's not just about knocking the woman for glamming herself. I need up. to take that back then. I, I don't want to project the idea because I'm thinking of also just sort of this sort of archetype of the kind of woman mm-hmm. in 1977 that Murphy is representing. I do believe that feminism has room for everybody mm-hmm. no matter what you look or who you are or what mm-hmm. you decide to do or how you represent yourself. Mm-hmm. Feminism is that I can be who I am and you can be who you are yes. and a man can be who he is. Mm-hmm. I just want to have a seat at the table. Yes. And what and because of that the character in this moment of insecurity, of imperfection, which is what I appreciate about it, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The character in the moment disappoints me as a feminist because she stoops to knocking a woman for her looks when that okay. woman in that clip is showing that she has equal merit. And what I appreciate about it is not because I think that it shouldn't be like that. I appreciate that it is like that because it shows that she is a flawed person who actually wants this job. And she gets a little petty. And we love Murphy because she is flawed. Exactly. And the thing is, I honestly see both, I agree with you and I agree with myself. I've been on that other side. I have definitely resorted to, like, why does she have to dress like that? And then I have to stop myself and be like, that's not fair. Oh, I was talking to a family member who I won't say Mm -hmm. who brought up something and went, well, I just wish that Hillary wouldn't wear those pantsuits. And I went, hey, Mm. hey. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or, oh, that was, I just didn't like what she was wearing. What? Why is that informing you? Why are we doing it? And I would call her on it and she would laugh because she knew that Mm -hmm. it was true what I was calling her on. Mm Mm-hmm. But anyway, so Murphy says that she has something that's going to make her sign-off personal. And then before she can even say it, Linda Ellerby goes her famous sign-off with, and so it goes. <laughs> and Murphy has a conniption fit Yeah, that Ellerby was looking over her shoulder on the airplane, and she stole it. And this is her introduction to Arvin and Jim. She's still angry. Yelling at a screen. Yelling at a screen <laughs> while she's inter- being introduced to them. Like, she can't even stop herself from just, like, doing it. And they're kind of, kind of ignoring that mm-hmm. whole thing and just, like, you know, meeting her and niceties oh you know we've been following you as a foreign correspondent and this actually confirms our canon of 16 years yes. as we said it was probably a mistake at the time mm-hmm. but they totally cleared that up yes it completely works for me absolutely she was hired by Jean 16 years ago as a foreign correspondent mm-hmm. and then she was hired for for exactly. FYI they that's even why it say, works for me because she hasn't been working for Arvin yeah for 16 years no they the say the network mm-hmm. it totally fits yep. I'm fine with it but we'll get to something else in a moment. Yeah. So they think that, that Murphy should, you know, take a moment. They're going to put her in hair and makeup, and she, she stops them. And I love the way Candace plays this because there's an exasperation of, okay, I've heard this enough today. Yeah. This is me. This is who I am. This is how I want to do it. And, and Arvin says, well, I don't care if you do it in a grass skirt and a coconut bra. But then Jim, around this time, says something that I think you're probably going to want to want to say when Mur- Murphy pretty much asks which I alluded to before do you have to be you know blown dried and you know uh, lip gloss to present America the news and so she goes through this what is essentially to her what she thinks is going to be kind of a mic drop speech mm-hmm. she's like do you think blah 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 like clearly trying to connect to his his sense of like the news first and Jim just goes yes <laughs> I love it it's so just like yeah mm-hmm. and then as uh, Murphy is getting ready to go up and do her her audition a tour comes through, which includes baby Miles. And when the audience figures it out, they completely lose it. It's so well styled that you and this kid 
who I believe, was he coached by Grant? Yes, so Grant coached him himself, and he was very proud of his performance. It's so good. It is so clearly Miles. And you hear when the audience really, because the kid immediately is pulling focus in the best Grant Shaw kind of way Mm -hmm. as he's walking in. big grin. That big grin, those glasses, the outfit, the hair. It is so well styled, and this kid was coached so well by Grant that you, without anyone being like, Miles, come back here. Like, the audience is laughing and cheering immediately. Because it's so well visually produced. Mm-hmm. You might know this kid. This is Jason uh, Marsden. I wrote, he's the kid from our 90s childhood. Yes. He was on Boy Meets World, Full House, Step by Step. He was the announcer on the new Young Mickey Mouse Club. And uh, I think something that you probably, I mean, have mentioned before in the show is he's in Hocus Pocus. He's Zachary Banks. He's the black cat. He's the voice he's black Zachary cat. Banks. And he actually does a lot of voiceover work yeah, now. And he was 14 at the time. Yeah, he is the best. He, if you look at his face, especially like older face, all of a sudden you see all of the characters that he played in mm-hmm. your childhood. It's amazing. But here's the problem: his mother comes in, and he goes, "This is what I want to do." She goes, "No, you're going to be a cardiologist." <laughs> but here, here's like your the- uncle Stewart. <laughs> yes, thank you. But here's the problem. Oh, and then he goes, "Oh, jeez," <laughs> which was so great. <laughs> we find out later. That this would not be Miles' mother. Yeah, Miles Cannon was ruined here. No, but here, I can fix it. <gasps> Please do. This is his aunt, <gasps> who is taking him for the summer, oh. and they decide to go on a TV tour, because she says, and right? her husband is Stuart. Her husband is Stuart. I like it. I nailed it. Mm-hmm. Right? What does she say? She says, here we go. She says, you're going to be a cardiologist like your Uncle Stuart. Yeah. 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 This I'm is, fine with this that. This is his aunt. I allow this. Done. Yes. Canon complete. Ding, ding. So Murphy starts to do her copy, and something that Diane remarked on the commentary was that, you know, it was always hard to write this show because you're writing comedy, but you're also writing actual news copy for some of these people to read. And they wanted to establish in this moment how spontaneous Murphy is, that she's a great interviewer. She's not a screen reader, as Mm -hmm. some of them were called. Mm -hmm. And this is where, in the commentary, Diane says, Arvin became Murphy's mentor. Um, So Murphy stops herself. Because she's not a reader. You know, she really needs to... And what I love about this moment, too, is it, it shows that Murphy is spontaneous, but it also shows that that Frank and Murphy got the job together. Mm-hmm. You know... Also, it shows that she know You know when something's not working. Yeah. You know. And she knows that this is not how she's getting the job. Yeah. And instead of just going through it, she stops, which is very brave. And go, can I, can I do something else? So she, she takes Frank, who's like, you're crazy. What's happening here? He was afraid of being on camera. Yeah, exactly. And I, I bet you so much that she made him comfortable on camera, whereas if he had just been reading to the screen, he probably wouldn't have gotten the job. I truly believe that had she not pulled this stunt, neither of them would have gotten the job. Yes. He would not have been comfortable because he would have been trying to do copy as well. Mm-hmm. And this showed that he is a good conversationalist and that she is a great interviewer. Yeah. And she gets him to talk about being in New York, you know, because they already had that small conversation, so she mm-hmm. knows. And he starts to go into how he was on a ride-along. We mentioned in our little little Jim Doris mm-hmm. bit that they had just found the son of Sam. Yeah. So he talks about before that being in a ride-along, and, and it starts to sort of fade out. And we, we, we sort of peek in on Arvin and Jim's conversation. You know, and they sort of lament, you know, about Murphy being hired. She's a loose cannon. Jim mentions that she drank Cosell under the table. And Arvin's like, nah, going with Murphy Brown could be a big challenge. And, and Jim remarks that, that Ellerby would be the safe choice. 
uh, Arvin's getting too old for this, you know, but but Jim just has a feeling about Murphy. You know, mm-hmm. she's brash, she's outspoken, she's a real pistol. Not unlike Arvin. Which totally Jim is doing on purpose to yep. get at Arvin. Mm-hmm. And, and he says something that is, I believe, one of the voiceovers or something from On Another Plane. And so it's only out of context that this line resonates with me because mm-hmm. in the moment it feels a little like you're the guy and you're going to take care yeah. of her mm-hmm. but he says you are going to take responsibility for her you are going to control her mm-hmm. and I realize it's because of what happens in the montage that that line means something to me mm-hmm. but in this context it feels a little it feels very 1970s men very 1970s men but I think the gym took it in a different way I was going to say uh, the gym in this moment and the gym in this flashback I'm very fascinated by because I've never seen Jim seem looser. Yes, me too. He's very comfortable and not as stiff. And he feels, and I think maybe because he is at the top of the game, he is the leading man at this moment and not mm-hmm. the not the relic he's afraid he is in the in the present. But he also, you see, I see a bit of the Jim who who got ahead because he knows who he's talking to. Like I don't believe that Jim's saying that. That that is Jim's perspective. No, but he knows exactly what to say to Arvin. He knows exactly what Arvin at this point in time needs to hear and feel to take the risk on this yeah. risky woman. And I think that the words that Arvin say go into sort of the Jim machine mm-hmm. and come out differently. It doesn't mm-hmm. come. I'm the man to protect her. Nope, becomes different. Yep. So Arvin, you know, makes a, a remark that Phil sort of mentioned that it's going to be, you know, a pill battle with the network. And then Jim says something that I know you're going to want to say. Yeah. So what Jim says is, I'm an anchor man for God's sake. I just do the voice and scare the hell out of him. He goes, this is the summer I grew sideburns. He got colored sheets. Sometimes you have to take risks now and then. Your aggro sideburns. Oh, it's the best. During the scene, Diane commented on the commentary that she was very proud they never talked down to the audience mm-hmm. and that the network felt that they were forcing people to read the newspaper before they sat down. Yet she feels that that part of the show is the biggest contribution to their success. Yes. As it always is. They didn't dumb down for the audience. They, and it, the audience feels like they are being trusted yeah. to follow. Exactly. It's one of the reasons I love... I love the Sorkins and I love Amy Sherman Palladino and you know, I love the people who don't slow down for their audience because they know their audience is intelligent. Yeah. yeah. And that's the same thing we talk about why we love people showing us rather than telling us. Lift us up and we will follow. Yep. We shall fly. So we are, we end that segment back at Phil's in the present. Wait. Whoosh. We're back at Phil's in the present and we're back with Murphy and Linda. Murphy admits that she, actually she asked. Yeah, she really did want that job, and I do. Th- I do see it a bit as a. I didn't realize it at the time, but I really wanted that job. Yeah, you're you right. Know? You're absolutely right. And Linda says, "You know, I didn't steal, and so it goes from you. I stole it from Lloyd Dobbins." I love the way she says it from Lloyd Dobbins. She's Lloyd really Dobbins. got. She's funny. She's great. She's funny. She's wry. I like her. Then says, "What goes around comes around," and Murphy says, "You know, we traded places," and they talk about how they are. They're both happy where they are, and it actually really worked out. And then they talk about, you know, potentially switching places again. And Murphy says, you know, I was wondering about maybe writing a book. And then there's a pause, and nah. They're both super happy. Yeah. I feel like they're also, like, having fun with each other. They They don't really mean it. No, they don't really want to do it. They're like, what if I just... Nah. But I really want Murphy to write a book. I really want Murphy to write a book. I I don't know. I'd like a book to be written, Mm -hmm. and maybe, like, the wrong copy gets out, like, the unedited copy, and she gets in trouble. Yes. I want all the details. Maybe this new world, Murphy has written that book. That's true. Maybe she has. Maybe she's written two. Exactly. Maybe there are multiple books out there about Murphy. 
we move on and it's later. Oh, so we, whoosh. Well, not really, but it's okay. Well, it's later at Phil's. The hype has died down. It's a bit of, there's like a tumbleweed. <laughs> there's a bit of a ghost town happening now at Phil's. We're back to only the, the regulars. And he says his 15 minutes of fame have come and gone. Apparently they all went to Chad's because there was a Dan Quayle sighting in the dining room. Ding. Ding. And then she's like, oh, okay. And there, you know, he's, and then he proceeds to complain about what is he, what the hell is he going to do with all these cockamamie Phil dolls and grabs a doll and plops it on the, the bartender. May I have for a moment? Yes. So I thought, oh, yay, I'm going to get to do Yiddish theater. But it's not. Oh, no. It's Yinglish. Yinglish. Can I talk a bit about the Please history of cockamamie? I love cockamamie and Yinglish. Because I'm fascinated about this. So apparently cockamamie is sort of a hybrid of, they say English, but really it's a French word, which I'm probably going to bastardize, but the way that the Americans might say it was cockamania, cockamania, that's it, cockamania. Cockamania. But it sounds better in French. Mm-hmm. It's actually these sort of decals, right? Mm-hmm. This is how the origins of the mm-hmm. word that in, you know, the 1860s in Paris was all the rage mm. that, um, and they called them decals at the time, obviously, mm-hmm. probably where the word came from, that you would put on furniture or on, so not on yourself yet, or yep. on a teacup, and it was all the rage. Mm-hmm. And then by the time they came to the United States, I'd say like early 1900s, young Jewish kids on the Lower East Side didn't know how to say it, well, they didn't know how to spell it. Mm-hmm. Or probably say it. And so it became this sort of hybrid of, uh, oh, it's a cockamamie. Mm-hmm. So it became to refer to sort of the temporary tattoos that yep. people put on themselves. And then it sort of became like a fake, mm-hmm. not real. Ridiculous. And interesting enough, the first time that the word cockamamie is technically listed, even though it was probably in radio plays before this, mm-hmm. is Woman of the Year with Katherine Hepburn. Really? That is the first documented in sort of, you know, a vi- videography dialect co- conversation. Huh. Um, although in the 1930s, there is an article in which someone refers to the cockamamies of their youth. But they're mm-hmm. literally talking about the decal. Yeah. So Woman of the Year is really the first sort of reference to it as, you know, what we know of it today. Oh, yeah. it's so cockamamie. Yeah. It's like foolish. Yeah. Ridiculous. So it's not really Yiddish. It's mm-hmm. just Yiddish-speaking people taking a word they didn't Coining understand mm-hmm. and kind of making it sound like their own word. Amazing. Like fancy schmancy. Fancy schmancy? Mm-hmm. Schmacting, so that that really I was so English. so excited when I when I found that out went through a little sort of you know I love etymology, yeah. so yes Murphy takes the Phil doll that he has offered I want a Phil doll Diane has the Phil doll <gasps> I don't think she's going to give it up to you I don't think so but we, I want to just I'm going to stitch my own Phil doll yeah. that seems creepy but I want one yeah. so Frank comes in and we find ourselves kind of back at the beginning oh I love it and they they sit at the hero table. Murphy has a club soda now. But wait, what I love, too, is that they come up to the bar at the same point yes. where they met, yep. only they order the opposite drinks. Exactly. So, uh, not exact opposite, but well, alcoholic and non. So that's we have what a I club mean. soda in Murphy's and a draft for Frank. And Frank offers to pay. He's just that kind of guy. <laughs> um, he's not afraid to buy a woman a drink anymore. It, it's the 90s. Yeah. Do you know there's a video compilation we should put in the show notes mm. of just people in 90s movies saying, but it's, it's the 90s. It's the 90s. Murphy realizes that they're so old. <laughs> And they sit down at the at the hero table, and it's this little ending is so heartwarming mm. um, because it both makes fun of the fact that they're old and they can't remember the lyrics that well. 
So they, they start it, they mess up a little in the middle, and they finish it off together, and it ends on just a beautific smile between the two of them. Mm, she's holding the Phil doll. Yeah, I love it. I Maybe yeah. it took a screenshot of that. Mm-hmm. And so we end 1977. And so it goes. You can find us on social media. We are Murphy Brown Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and the Twitter. We are at murphybrownpod.com if you'd like to check out our show notes, FAQs on how to get tickets to go to a filming of Murphy Brown, how to listen to our Spotify playlist, mm-hmm. all of the magic past episodes. Indeed. Our, you know, our faces, our bios. You can read those as yeah. well. Also, if you, if you don't want to use social media, you can always reach out to us by emailing us at, at murphybrownpod at gmail.com. Our next episode, episode 21, is The Bickners by Russ Woody. And we'll see you next week for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. John's in the basement, mixing up the medicine. I'm on the pavement, think about the government. Man in a trench coat, badge out, lay it off. Says he's got a bad cough, wants to get it paid off. Look out, kid, it's something you did. God knows when, but you're doing it again. Oh, I take the breath. And it, that's where mm-hmm. I take the breath. Yeah, that's where I take the breath. I'm just hot right now. Whoo!